Hi, my name is Matthew Belisario. Welcome to the Catholic Champion Podcast. Today's episode, we will focus on the precepts of the Catholic Church. We will focus on the first precept, which is you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor. Now, understanding the precepts is a, a key component to Catholicism because without a person adhering to these precepts, they can't really be considered practicing Catholics. In today's world, we have a serious problem with people calling themselves Catholic who are not, in reality, really practicing Catholics. We have many people in the public eye, many people in the political realm, who are baptized Catholics, yet don't believe what the church teaches. And this is a problem today because many people look to these people as being, as representing Catholicism, when in reality, they are not. And so when we really, when we look at these precepts here, we're going to see how, what, what these precepts are going to define really what a practicing Catholic is in, in a very basic way. Now, I'm going to be using the Catechism of the Catholic Church to look at this, these five precepts. In the past, in the old catechisms, there were usually six precepts, and the sixth one was marrying non-Catholics. And since then, the church has made some changes, and now we have five precepts. So the five precepts that we will be talking about is the first one being you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor. The second precept is you shall confess your sins at least once a year. The third precept is you shall receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season. The fourth one is you shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the church. And the fifth one is you shall help to provide for the needs of the church. So these are the five precepts that we are going to look at. But before we get to that, I, we have to lay down a, a foundation here. And the catechism lays down a foundation uh, before it gets to the precepts. In uh, part three, section one, chapter three, article three, this is where it lays down the precepts. But before it does that, it talks about the church. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the church is and how this lays down the foundation for the precepts. Article 3 is titled, The Church, Mother, and Teacher. This is very important because if we don't believe that there's a church that Christ established through his apostles, that has been passed down, uh, and the teachings have been passed down infallibly through the apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, if we don't believe that the church is capable of giving us the gospel infallibly, then the precepts aren't going to mean a whole lot to us. And so we're going to look at the church, which sacred scripture calls the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now Christ, we know, sent forth his apostles. On Pentecost, we know the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles. And from that point forward, the church was fully established. And Christ sent out those, the apostles to pass on the gospel. And they did this orally. And so those who think that they can just 
go pick up the New Testament and interpret it from themselves infallibly and think that they understand everything that's in it and all and, and how uh, God has divinely revealed his gospel and they think that they're the sole arbiters over scripture, well, they have a serious problem because there are many, many millions of other people out there just like them who interpret it differently. That leaves them in a huge quagmire. It is no, uh, we, we know that Christ passed down this teaching. We can see such as in Luke uh, 10, 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And Christ clearly gives the charge to the apostles to go out and to pass on the gospel. And those who reject that gospel are rejecting Christ himself. So, the catechism tells us that the Roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers. That is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. Now, the ordinary and universal magisterium is the Pope and the bishops in communion with him. And it is only this communion that makes up the church. And so, we believe that Christ speaks through his church, just as he spoke through the apostles. Now, we look at the teaching of the church as being authoritative. So whether or not the church teaches something solemnly declared infallible does not give us the right to ignore it. Uh, Many Protestants like to go on their blogs and put down, well, this teaching hasn't been uh, solemnly defined infallible, so this proves that it's not necessarily the truth, and they can go back and they can change it and this and that. Well, this is all a smokescreen and a bunch of garbage. No, when the church teaches something, it teaches it with the authority of the church. It's like Christ teaching it. And so, when it comes to faith and morals, the church doesn't change her teaching. When it comes to faith and morals, she teaches infallibly. The church can make changes in how she decides to worship or how she decides to to teach uh, the faithful and how to apply the teachings uh, to the church in different times and places. But the teachings themselves are what Christ has taught. And those things don't change. They're doctrinal. So, one other point that I would like to point out is that the magisterium is given a charism from Christ, which gives it a charism of infallibility. And this extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation. It includes to the elements of doctrine, including morals, and it it focuses on our salvation. And this is what really all these precepts boil down to, is what's good for us, what's good for our salvation. The church puts all these precepts out there because it knows what will be best for us to become close with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And once we look at everything from this particular perspective, we'll start to forget about looking at it from a legalistic way. Uh, oh, geez, I have to go to Mass today. It's Sunday. 
I really want to watch the football game. Uh, I really want to watch the race today. Oh, I need to hurry and get home. So you're sitting in mass, not paying attention. Your heart is not there. Where is this going to get us? It's not going to bring us closer to Christ. We have to have a love in our heart. So the church knows that if we go to mass and we receive our Lord on Sundays, then we will be have a closer relationship with our Lord. Now, the first precept, which is, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor, it revolves around the liturgy, the divine liturgy. So let me touch a little bit on this particular subject, because if we don't understand the divine liturgy, we're going to really miss the whole point of this precept. Now, the divine liturgy is the central focus of Christian worship. It has been since the beginning. We see it with Christ instituting the Last Supper. We see St. Paul talking about it in the scriptures. We see the early Christians breaking bread. We see the early Christians celebrating a Eucharistic Supper. Yes, it wasn't as organized in the early centuries of the church because the church was suffering under persecution. And so we don't really see a unified liturgical practices until around the year 250 when it really became uh, solidified. They all became very similar in composition. Now, every single apostolic church, whether it be, whether it be uh, Orthodox or Catholic, they all have the divine liturgy. They all have a priesthood. They all believe that the apostles passed on this particular charism of the bishop to their successors. And they all believe that Christ truly becomes present at the consecration at the divine liturgy. So this is something that the Protestants have neglected. They believe that they can just read the scriptures and come up with whatever worship form that they deem to be uh, beneficial to them, whether it be entertainment. I, I was a Protestant uh, for many years, went to several different churches, and it revolved around the pastor and how entertaining he was, how good of a preacher he was, and after uh, the service, we would go out and talk about his message for the day. And, you know, I always found it interesting because I would go back and read the same passages that he had just preached on. And I would look at them and I'd be like, well, you know, I'm not getting that from them. And then one of the other guys would be like, yeah, you know, well, I'm getting this from it. And so it turned out to be, uh, Sola Scriptura turns out to be the quagmire um, of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's a quagmire. You have everybody thinking that their own their own pope, and everybody thinking that they can interpret the scriptures for themselves. And so, when you end up interpreting a certain passage of scripture that you deem to be important differently than your pastor does, then you end up just looking for another church that agrees with uh, what you agree with. So, I was a Protestant for many years, and I finally realized that there's something awry here. And so. The search began to really look at and see what authentic Christianity was. And I found myself torn between the Orthodox and Catholic churches. But that's another story. The point I'm making is every single apostolic church, whether it be Eastern or Western, uh, the Syrian, the Coptic, uh, the Roman Rite, they all have a divine liturgy that can be traced back to at least the, the, around the 4th century such as the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is still used in the churches today in the Eastern Church, both Catholic and Orthodox. 
traces all the way back to the 4th century. And the same thing with the Liturgy of St. Basil and so forth. So this is something that is missing in the Protestant churches, and so they completely deny our Lord's uh, presence, our Lord's sacrifice in the Eucharist. And they completely deny the priesthood. Now, when we look at the Divine Liturgy, Christ is the center and focus of the worship life of the Catholic Church. It's not about the pastor. It's not about his interpretations of Scripture. It's about Christ. And so when we go to Mass on Sundays, we go, first of all, because Christ is due this worship. God is due worship from us because he's God. And so we have to understand that. Um, If we just look at this from a legalistic standpoint, and we don't look at the sovereignty of God and realize that, wow, he's God. Yes, he's all deserving of my worship and my love and my gratitude. And we, that's a primary reason for going to church on Sundays. Now, the church by tradition has deemed Sunday to be the uh, primary uh, worship day, because, celebrating the resurrection. And so when we go to Mass every Sunday, it is like being present uh, during the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. We actually step into that sacrifice. We step out of time, and we actually participate in that same sacrifice. No, it's not another sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice every Mass. It's the same sacrifice. It's an eternal sacrifice that our Lord made for us. It wasn't just made in, uh, in time alone. It's our Lord. He's a divine person. The sacrifice is eternal. And so we enter into that eternal sacrifice on Sundays when we go to Mass. Now, we give our Lord the worship that he is due. It's all about him, not about us. But one thing that the Lord gives us when we go to Mass is actual graces. God delivers actual graces to us through the Eucharist and through the Divine Liturgy itself. Now, Father Hardin, in his book with us today, says that actual grace is divine assistance which enables us to obtain, retain, or grow in supernatural grace and the life of God. So once again, what is this oriented towards? It's oriented towards our relationship with Christ. This is what it's all about. This is what Catholicism is about. It's about your relationship, intimate relationship with Christ. This is why the church comes up with the liturgical feasts, why, why the church has obligatory holy days of obligation, because it knows what's good for the salvation of souls. And so, when we go to Mass on Sundays, we receive these actual graces. We become closer to God because it's only by His grace that we can do anything. He is all he is, he is the sovereign God. He gives us all the graces out of his generosity. And so when we go to Mass, we give him the worship that he deserves, and we receive graces that he wills to bestow upon us. And so let's look at the Holy Days of Obligation. Now, in the Roman Rite, we have the following days of holy, uh, that are considered Holy Days of Obligation. January 1st, the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God. Uh, Thursday of the sixth week of Easter, which is the Solemnity of the Ascension of our Lord. 
August 15th is the Solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. November 1st is the Solemnity of All Saints. December 8th is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. And December 25th, of course, is Christmas, the birth of our Lord. So the church deems these days to be uh, obligatory for us to, to go to because it unites us with the life of Christ. Through these feasts, we actually participate in the Gospels. We actually live these different days. When we go to, to church on Christmas, we unite ourselves with the incarnation of our Lord. This is one of the most beautiful feast days that's ever been given to the church, that the church has given to us. It celebrates the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It celebrates him taking on flesh to come and be with us and takes on flesh so that he can sacrifice himself for us. This is one of the most beautiful feast days of the church. And yet, what amazes me is we have these Reformed Protestants that I've seen on their blogs actually go and try to encourage people not to go to church on Christmas. This really uh, sickens me to see people try to subvert the incarnation of our Lord. And that's what they're doing. Whether, whether they say they're doing, they, that's their intention or not makes no difference because that's what they're doing. They are trying to come out and tell people not to go to church on Sunday. And this is nonsense. The church has the authority to declare certain feast days for the good, for the salvation of souls. This is what she does. So when we look at Christmas, we see the beautiful incarnation of our Lord. And we go to Mass that day. And we thank God for his incarnation. And we give him the worship that is due. Now, let me, I want to look at some of these other feast days because even the feast days that, that honor the Blessed Virgin Mary are still all oriented and focused towards Christ. You see, without Christ, there is no Immaculate Conception. Without Christ, there is no Virgin Mary. There are no saints. So when we look at, for instance, the Immaculate Conception, which is when Our Lady was... was uh, conceived without sin, she becomes the ark for Christ who will be within her womb. Now, this is very important because we see how the Blessed Virgin Mary ends up undoing the knot that Eve caused in the beginning. Now, as we know, Adam and Eve were created without sin. They were, they, were, they were in a state of original grace. After the fall, all people after that were in a state of original sin. And so, it is fitting that our Lord coming in the flesh comes into the world through a stainless womb. Our Lady becomes the one who unties the knot of sin. Many church fathers tell us this. So our Lord comes into the world through a human being by his choice and she receives special graces that she will be without sin and she will be ever virgin. Now we celebrate this in the Catholic Church. Why? 
because it pertains to our Lord. It's about his incarnation. And when we look at all these things, they all, all these feast days, they all tie into our Lord. He is the central focus of all these feast days. Even, for instance, the, the Feast of All Saints. We celebrate this feast day. Why? Is it just, just to, to, to give honor to the saints alone and, and, and for us to say how great this particular saint was and how he did this and did that? No. It's about how Christ gave that saint particular graces so that they can live these holy lives and they can do these holy things. It's all through Christ, through his grace. And so when we celebrate the feast days of the saints, we give honor to our Lord for the great things and the great works he has done through his family. So when we look at this from this perspective, we can really see how all the feast days are Christocentric. They all focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to sum up the first precept uh, regarding Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, we have to understand that the church is acting as a mother. The church is really trying to nourish us with the Word and, and the Eucharist of our Lord. And she knows that if we attend these Holy Days of Obligation, that we'll, we'll, we will unite ourselves in, this, in the Gospel. We will actually live the Gospel. And we'll, we will become closely united to Christ in doing these things if we do them with a heart of love and a heart of obedience out of love. So this is very important because it nourishes us, it gives us actual graces, and it really unites us close to God in prayer as well. It lifts up our hearts, the divine liturgy. Now, the final part that I want to touch on before I close here is resting from servile labor. This is a big problem today because we have such a secular materialistic culture. And more and more people are having to work on Sundays now, which makes it hard to, to, to follow this part of the precept. Of course, if we make every effort that we can not to work on Sunday and to go to Mass, and to spend the day in prayer and in fellowship with other, other people, then, and God knows that. Now, if we, have to, we, if we have a job where we have to have it and we have to feed our families, obviously, then we, we won't be able to do this. But what the church here is saying is that we shouldn't be working on Sundays by our own free will, really. Uh, if we have to do it out of necessity because we have to feed our children and feed our family, then that's one thing. But the church expects us to make every effort to not work on Sundays and to make it a holy day devoted to God and to worship. And so I want to close uh, by looking at, we're, we're going to talk about the second precept in the next episode. And one thing that I want to close with is just to, to really communicate how all five of these precepts are uniquely tied together. And, for instance, the second precept is you shall confess your sins at least once a year. Now, if you don't go to confession and you live your, your life in a state of serious mortal sin, then can you fulfill the first precept by just showing up to church every Sunday and receiving communion? No, you're going to be committing a sacrilege. And this is the problem that we have in today's culture 
especially with the, these politicians, once again, that, that, that call themselves Catholic, yet clearly support abortion on demand, going against the church's teachings on, on, on contraception and so forth. These people separate themselves from the body of Christ. They're not really practicing Catholics. Once they willfully and obstinately refuse and deny a core teaching of the church, such as abortion, they become heretics. They are not, uh, they are not practicing Catholics. They are not represented. Rep, they don't represent what a faithful Catholic uh, is. And so this is really important because today a lot of people look to these certain politicians that call themselves Catholics, yet who openly disobey the church, and they, they consider them, well, you know, Catholics aren't united. We can see how the Senator so-and-so here supports contraception, and Senator so-and-so here votes for abortion. And I see Protestant apologists do this all the time, saying, oh, look, the, the church is no more united than the Protestants and all this nonsense. Yet, what's the difference between sola scriptura and and the difference in the Catholic Church. Well, here's the big difference. The big difference is we have official church teachings that tell us what we should believe because it's what Christ gave us through the church. In Sola Scriptura, you have nobody to go to for any clarification. You have nothing. All you have is your personal opinion, which doesn't amount to anything in my opinion. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if I read the sacred scriptures, my opinion is just as good as anybody else's. And don't give me this this baloney of, oh, I have a doctorate and I can read Greek and all this other garbage because guess what? There are several Greek scholars that disagree on the interpretation of Scripture as well. So that doesn't help you out a whole lot. This is not an intellectual exercise of reading Scripture. So we look at the church. The church teaches with divine authority. And if you disagree and you're a baptized Catholic, then you don't fulfill the precepts of the church. Because in order for you to confess your sins, you have to be truly sorry for them. So, for instance, if Senator, Catholic Senator A believes that abortion is okay and consistently supports abortion and tries to use taxpayer money to fund abortions and does this over and over and over, are they truly repentant? They have to be truly repentant. When you go to confess your sins... It has to be uh, with the condition that you'll never do it again or make every effort never to do it again. And so we're going to tie all these precepts together at the end, but I just wanted to point out how intimately related all of these precepts are. And we're going to talk about confession in our next episode. I thank you very much for listening to this podcast and may God bless and keep you until next time.